Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care, along with Sarah Moore, to bring you the podcast of the April 2013 issue. Let me use this as another opportunity to remind you to visit our new website at www.rcjournal.com. If you have an iPhone, iPad, or iPod, you can download our new app from the Apple Store. If you have one of the other mobile smartphones or devices, you will see that our website is optimized for your device. Our editor's choice paper for April is Contemporary Ventilator Management in Patients with and at Risk of ALI-ARDS by Chang and colleagues. They performed a secondary analysis of a multicenter cohort of adult subjects at risk of lung injury with and without ALI-ARDS at onset of invasive ventilation. Of 829 mechanically ventilated patients, 107 met the criteria for ALI-ARDS at time of intubation, and 161 developed ALI-ARDS after intubation. There was significant intercenter variability in initial ventilator settings and in the incidence of ALI-ARDS and post-intubation ALI-ARDS. The median tidal volume was 7.96 predicted body weight in ALI-ARDS subjects and 8.45 milliliters per kilogram in subjects without ALI-ARDS. Tidal volume decreased from 8.4 milliliters per kilogram to 7.97 milliliters per kilogram predicted body weight in those developing post-intubation ALI-ARDS. Among subjects without ALI-ARDS, tidal volume equal or greater than 8 milliliters per kilogram was associated with shorter height and higher body mass index, while subjects with pneumonia were less likely to get equal or greater than 8 milliliters per kilogram. Initial tidal volume equal or greater than 8 milliliters per kilogram was not associated with the post-intubation ALI-ARDS or worse outcomes. Post-intubation ALI-ARDS subjects had similar mortality as subjects intubated with ALI-ARDS. Chang et al. examined factors associated with choice of tidal volumes and whether a tidal volume less than 8 ml per kilogram relates to the development of ARDS. They found that clinicians respond to ARDS with lower initial tidal volumes. Interestingly, initial tidal volume was not associated with the development of post-intubation ARDS or other outcomes. But, as Dixon points out in his editorial, the tidal volume in those who did not have ARDS at the onset of intubation is smaller than that used traditionally, suggesting that practice has evolved towards the use of lower tidal volumes in all intubated patients. Next, we have two papers related to the high-flow nasal cannula. The first is by Riera et al., Effects of High-Flow Nasal Cannula and Body Position on N-Expiratory Lung Volume, a cohort study using electrical impedance tomography. This was a prospective study with 20 healthy adults. Two periods were defined, the first in supine position and the second in prone positions. Each period was divided into three phases. In the first and third phases, the subjects were breathing ambient air, and in the second, high-flow nasal cannula was implemented. Four regions of interest were defined, 
two ventral and two dorsal. For each respiratory cycle, global and regional end expiratory lung impedance variation were measured by electrical impedance tomography and were expressed as a function of the tidal variation of the first stable respiratory cycle units. The high flow nasal cannula increased global end expiratory lung impedance by 1.26 units in supine position and by 0.87 units in prone position. The distribution of regional end expiratory lung impedance variation was homogeneous in prone position, with no difference between ventral and dorsal lung regions, while in the supine position a significant difference was found. The authors concluded that high-flow nasal cannula increased global, regional, and expiratory lung impedance in their population, regardless of body position, suggesting an increase in functional residual capacity. Prone positioning was related to a more homogeneous distribution of regional end expiratory lung impedance variation, while in supine position, regional end expiratory lung impedance variation was higher in the ventral lung regions. Nasal high-flow oxygen therapy in do-not-intubate patients with hypoxemic respiratory distress is by Peters and colleagues. They identified 50 do-not-intubate patients with hypoxemic respiratory distress who were admitted to a medical ICU and who received high-flow nasal cannula. They excluded patients with PaCO2 greater than 65 millimeters mercury and a pH less than 7.28. The primary endpoint was the need for escalation to non-invasive ventilation. Mean changes in oxygen saturation and breathing frequency before and after high-flow nasal cannula were compared. Diagnoses included pulmonary fibrosis, pneumonia, COPD, cancer, hematologic malignancy, and congestive heart failure. Hospital mortality was 60%. High-flow nasal cannula was initiated at a mean FiO2 of 0.67 and a flow of 43 liters per minute. Mean oxygen saturations increased from 89.1% to 94.7%, and breathing frequency decreased from 31 breaths per minute to 25 breaths per minute. Nine of the 50 subjects escalated to non-invasive ventilation. The median duration of high-flow nasal cannula therapy was 30 hours. The authors concluded that nasal high-flow therapy can provide adequate oxygenation for many patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure and may be an alternative to non-invasive ventilation for do-not-intubate patients. The results of the study of Raira and colleagues suggest an increase in functional residual capacity with use of high-flow nasal cannula. Peters et al. found that high-flow nasal cannula can provide adequate oxygenation with hypoxemic respiratory failure and may be an alternative to non-invasive ventilation in do-not-intubate patients. Given the accumulating evidence supporting the use of high-flow nasal cannula, Wettstein suggests in his editorial that there should be wider promotion of this treatment modality. Next, we have the paper, Inpatient Rehabilitation Outcomes Following Lower Extremity Fracture in Patients with Pneumonia by Ahmed et al. They examine the impact of comorbid pneumonia on outcomes for patients with lower extremity fracture receiving inpatient medical rehabilitation services. 
Secondary data analysis of medical records obtained from 919 inpatient rehabilitation facilities in the United States. The sample included 153,241 subjects who received inpatient rehabilitation services following lower extremity fractures between 2005 and 2007. Pneumonia was a comorbidity for 2.8% of the subjects with lower extremity fracture. The multivariable models indicated that subjects with no payment-eligible comorbidity experienced shorter stay, higher discharge functional status ratings, and higher odds of home discharge compared to subjects with pneumonia. Pneumonia is a common comorbidity among hospitalized older adults and may impede functional restoration and increase medical cost. Medicare reimbursement rates for patients receiving inpatient medical rehabilitation services are higher for individuals who have comorbid pneumonia. In this study, pneumonia was a comorbidity for 2.8% of the subjects with lower extremity fracture. Pneumonia was associated with poorer rehabilitation outcomes in terms of longer hospital stay, lower discharge functional status, and lower odds of being discharged to home. Effect of Visualization of Raw Graphic Polysomnography Data by Sleep Apnea Patients on Adherence to CPAP Therapy is by Nadim and colleagues. They aim to determine the efficacy of showing patients their raw graphic polysomnography data in increasing their CPAP adherence. The subjects were patients with obstructive sleep apnea. The patients in the experimental arm were shown detailed polysomnography data, including graphic data from polysomnography prior to prescription of CPAP. The patients in the control arm were shown the non-graphic paper report of the polysomnography. Adherence data collected using CPAP devices with internal adherence cards was read at four weeks after treatment initiation. There was no difference in age, body mass index, and apnea hypopnea index between the experimental and control arms. There was no difference in percent of days CPAP was used and average number of hours each night CPAP was used between the experimental and control arms, respectively. In multilogistic regression models, only body mass index was found to increase likelihood of improved adherence. CPAP is considered to be the cornerstone of therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. However, adherence to this treatment is frequently poor, which may lead to ongoing symptoms, including daytime sleepiness and poor cognitive function. Unfortunately, showing patients raw graphic polysomnography data did not improve adherence to CPAP. BMI, however, was a strong predictor of CPAP adherence. Next is the paper by Wong et al. High-Resolution Computed Tomography in Assessment of Patients with Emphysema. The objective of this study was to assess whether high-resolution computed tomography variables are as good as other known clinical variables in grading emphysema patients. A detailed clinical history was taken and physical examination performed. The authors performed serum study, lung function testing, and high-resolution computed tomography scanning to assess emphysema.
Mean lung density, the attenuation value separating the least 15% of pixels, the percentage of the relative area of the lungs with attenuation values equal or less than 950 Hounsfield units, and histogram analysis was calculated from the computerized data. The final analysis was based on data from 92 subjects, and they were moderately emphysematous. There was a significant difference regarding subjective emphysema severity in the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, Smoking History, FEV1, C-reactive protein, age, and body mass index. There was a significant correlation between the three objective image variables and the six objective clinical variables. Because there was a significant correlation between three objective image variables and six objective clinical variables, this study shows the possible important role of high-resolution computed tomography in the diagnosis and quantification of pulmonary emphysema. Further work is warranted to evaluate the clinical importance of these findings. Tidal volume delivery from ICU ventilators in BTPS condition, a bench study, is by Duchateau and Guerin. They added an external filter to the expiratory limb and measured tidal volume from six ICU ventilators, two with a built-in expiratory filter and four without, set in volume-controlled mode at body temperature and pressure-saturated condition, with a heated humidifier and a lung model placed inside a neonatal incubator. The temperature was targeted at 37 degrees centigrade for both the heated humidifier and the incubator. The setup was run continuously for 24 hours. At the end of this period, tidal volume was measured at four nominal values of 300, 400, 500, and 800 milliliters. They found that, in BTPS condition, volume error differed substantially across ICU ventilators for tidal volume delivery, with further significant changes occurring after adjunction of a filter at the distal expiratory limb. An external filter to the expiratory limb of the breathing circuit may protect the expiratory valve from water saturation in the case of nebulization and from the environment in the case of lung infection with multidrug resistant microorganisms or H1N1 influenza. These authors found that volume air differed substantially across the ventilators for tidal volume delivery with further significant changes occurring after adding a filter at the distal expiratory limb. Optoelectronic vital capacity measurement for restrictive diseases is by Bordeham et al. The objective of this study was to determine whether optoelectronic plethysmography accurately evaluated vital capacity in patients with respiratory muscle dysfunction of variable severity including those with paradoxical abdominal movements. In 20 subjects, vital capacity was measured in the supine position using both spirometry and optoelectronic plethysmography, which consisted of six optoelectronic cameras and 52 reflective markers on the anterior chest wall. Vital capacity measured by spirometry correlated positively with optoelectronic vital capacity, and the regression line was very close to the identity line. A Bland-Altman plot showed that the mean difference was minus 20 milliliters, and the limits of agreement were 163 milliliters and minus 203 milliliters. 
The difference between the two values expressed as the percentage of the mean value was less than 15% in all 20 subjects, less than 10% in 85% of subjects, and less than 5% in 55% of subjects. The difference, expressed as the percentage of mean value, was unrelated to the contribution of abdominal motion to vital capacity, but was significantly related to body mass index. The authors conclude that optoelectronic plethysmography is accurate and suitable for vital capacity measurements in patients with various degrees of respiratory failure. This is an interesting approach to the measurement of vital capacity. These data suggest that it is accurate and suitable for vital capacity measurement in patients with various degrees of respiratory failure. This method is an attractive alternative for accurately measuring vital capacity in the setting of air leakage, as may occur in patients with neuromuscular disease or when patients are unable to breathe with the dead space added by the spirometer. Next is the paper, Atomidate Adrenal Function and Mortality in Critically Ill Patients by Sunshine et al. They conducted a retrospective cohort study from January 1, 2001 to December 31, 2005 of 824 subjects requiring mechanical ventilation who underwent adrenal function testing in the ICUs of two academic medical centers. The primary outcome was in-hospital mortality, comparing 452 subjects given automidate to 372 subjects given an alternate induction agent. The secondary outcome was diagnosis of critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency following automidate exposure. The overall mortality was 34%. After adjustment for age, sex, and baseline illness severity, the relative risk of death among the automidate recipients was higher than that of subjects given an alternative agent, with a relative risk of 1.20. Among subjects whose adrenal function was assessed within the 48 hours following intubation, the adjusted risk of meeting the criteria for critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency was 1.37, comparing automidate recipients to subjects given another induction agent. In critically ill patients, induction with automidate has been hypothesized to be associated with an increased risk of mortality. Previous randomized studies suggest a modest trend toward an increased risk of death among automidate recipients. In this retrospective study, automidate was associated with a trend towards an increase in mortality. Large prospective controlled trials are needed to finalize the role of automidate in critically ill patients. Active humidification with Bosignac CPAP in vitro study of a new method is by Alonzo Inigo et al. The objective of this study was to carry out an in vitro study of Bosignac CPAP valve performance with a new humidification method using a heated humidifier. Baseline measurements were taken in all experimental conditions without humidification. The Bosignac valve was adapted to the input of humidification chamber. The system was connected to a test lung to assess the degree of pressurization. Hygrometric and pressure measurements were performed with the following gas flows, 10, 20, 30, and 40 liters per minute. The mean values of pressure generated by the Bosignac valve were 2, 7, 
17, and 21 centimeters of water at flows of 10, 20, 30, and 40 liters per minute respectively. There was no difference detected between study groups. Overall absolute humidity was significantly greater with the heated humidifier than without humidification. Absolute humidity was significantly higher in the Kendall Aerodyne 2000 compared to the MR850 regardless of the selected temperature and flow. These authors found that Bosniak CPAP humidification yielded humidity values above 25 milligrams of water per liter regardless of the heated humidifier and flow that was used. CPAP pressure was not influenced by humidification. These data open up the possibility of using Bosniak CPAP with different types of patients and different interfaces for long periods of time. Sung Liu et al. evaluated the prognostic value of plasma human beta defensin 2 level on short-term clinical outcomes in patients with community-acquired pneumonia. In patients with community-acquired pneumonia, a lower plasma human beta defensin 2 level was an independent predictor of adverse outcomes. Plasma human beta defensin 2 level may become a useful tool for prognostic stratification in patients with community-acquired pneumonia. In North America, non-invasive ventilation is usually managed by respiratory therapists. In Europe, this responsibility is sometimes performed by physiotherapists. Simonelli et al. described the implementation of a standardized protocol for non-invasive ventilation adaptation and the physiotherapist role. They found that, in Italy, physiotherapists can play a key role in the respiratory care management of patients receiving non-invasive ventilation and that this reduces the time spent by other health professionals. The study by Hong and colleagues determined the trends in hospital resource utilization and associated factors in prolonged mechanical ventilation in Taiwan. They found a decrease in the prevalence of prolonged mechanical ventilation, especially for older patients, and that stay decreased, but hospital treatment cost increased for this patient population. In another paper from Taiwan, Chen Yong Li et al. evaluated the impact of Taiwan's integrated prospective payment program on prolonged mechanical ventilation. In this six-year nationwide study, they found that implementation of this program reduced the total hospitalization cost, increased the duration of mechanical ventilation usage and stay, and reduced the weaning rate in patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation. Although the data from these two studies were generated in Taiwan, they are likely applicable to similar populations in other countries. A systematic review and meta-analysis of the efficacy and safety of conventional transbronchial needle aspiration and sarcoidosis was conducted by Agarwal et al. The important finding of their review is that transbronchial needle aspiration is an efficacious and safe procedure in the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. Because the performance of transbronchial lung biopsy adds to the efficacy of transbronchial needle aspiration, a combination of transbronchial needle aspiration and transbronchial lung biopsy should be employed in the diagnosis of sarcoidosis in patients with enlarged mediastinal lymph nodes. 
This month, we publish a review of the coexistence of bronchiectasis and rheumatoid arthritis. We also publish a respiratory care year in review related to invasive mechanical ventilation, NIV, and cystic fibrosis. We publish case reports online related to the use of Heliox in patients with bronchiolitis obliterans after lung transplantation and aspiration of a cigarette filter from a bronchodilator inhaler. The teaching case, also published online, relates to severe cavitary pneumonia caused by a non-equirotococcus species. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.